Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about your imagination this morning and being able to discern what is real and what is not. Our brain does all of that work for us, right? But new research is showing that if that signal is weaker in the brain, it may help to explain why some people hallucinate and think what is happening is actually real. Now, hallucination is a real problem in in mental health issues, right? Trying to help people with those disorders sort out what is actually real and what is not. Well, this kind of research could go a long way. There's a new study that's been looking into this. We wanted to learn more about it this morning. So Dr. Nadine Jeekstra is with us now, a senior research fellow at Wellcome Center for Human Neuroimaging. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now, can you explain the work that's being done here? How does the brain tell the difference between something that is hallucination or what is real? Yeah, so what what our study basically seems to suggest is that one way in which the brain might do this is by just looking at how strong a signal is. So generally when we imagine something, we kind of see it in our mind's eye, but it's much less clear or vivid than reality. What we see is that if for some reason the imagination does become very strong, then we start confusing it for reality. Okay, so if the brain can do that, then how do we fix that? If Is it malfunctioning in people who have issues where they hallucinate? Yeah, for sure. So, so that, that, that would be the idea. There's one suggestion that maybe there's the, what we call hyper-excitability of the visual cortex. That for some reason, the signals that are supposed to uh, be weaker when we imagine something, for some reason, they get stronger in people who, lose, who hallucinate. Uh, and we, we don't know yet how to fix that, but I think this research would be a first kind of suggestion that we could look into that a bit more and, and really look at the visual cortex of these people and what's going on there. Were you surprised by that finding? Yeah, we were actually, we were. So this this is a study that we did in healthy participants, just the general population. And we found that actually everybody can experience this confusion between reality and imagination when we uh, get them in the right context. Uh, So in our experiment, it's quite hard to tell apart imagination and reality, but we, we kind of assumed that people would still be able to do that because we're so good at it in daily life. But surprisingly, most people actually uh, mix the two up in this, in this case. So could it be an indicator of mental health issues or is it as a result of mental health issues? Oh, that's a really good question. So we need, we still need to figure out the relationship between this effect and actual uh, clinical cases of hallucinations. Uh, we think there might be common drivers, but this is something that we really need to look at more in, in, in other research. And then whether it's a consequence or an actual cause, Ah, that's a really good question. Some research suggests that, for example, schizophrenia delusions start with hallucinations and then these more kind of um, delusions come later. But there's, this, a, lot of, a lot of this is still unclear and needs to be investigated further. Right. There's so many different things, though, involved in when, when the brain tricks you into what's, what is real and what is not, isn't there? 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so we now just look specifically at like how strong the the signal is, how clear or vividly you see something. But there are so many different factors. So, for example, background knowledge is important. So if you were to suddenly see a polar bear in your studio, you'd probably question your um, sense of reality, even even if it was very vivid. So there's all kinds of factors that we take into account to make these decisions. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I would definitely take, I would have to think twice about that. Okay, so has why hasn't this research ever been done before? Like, was this a, a new way of looking at this? Yeah, so I think a lot of this research focused either on uh, the, the clinical cases where it was obviously that, that things were going wrong and then, or they were focusing more on memory. So if you remember whether something really happened or it was something you just dreamed about. That's something that's quite common, uh, an ex- quite a common experience for people and has been investigated quite a lot. But this kind of reality monitoring in the moment for healthy participants, people just assumed that we were so good at it. We didn't need to check it. Like people assumed that we are so good at keeping apart reality and imagination that it's not really something to investigate in healthy participants. Hmm, um, but I think the, the last couple, yeah, but the last couple of years, there's been a lot of, neuroscience showing that when we imagine something, we actually activate very similar brain areas as when we would actually see the same thing. So that has kind of suggested to us that maybe this separation is not as clear as we like to think. Right. Because the other thing is, too, that that we know that memory can be tricky, don't we? Right. We know that yeah. sometimes when they say our mind plays tricks on us, we, we kind of know this, but it seems like we just we just assumed that our brain fixes these things. Yeah, we do. It, it is also a little bit unsettling to think that our perception of reality is not as objective as we might think. So, yeah. Oh, that is true. So what are the next steps with this research then? So there's a lot of different things that we can do. Um, so one thing, like I already mentioned, we want to link it to uh, clinical cases of reality monitoring failures, hallucinations, schizophrenia, see if similar mechanisms are at play. And this study was also really focused on the behavior, so whether people experience something as real or not, but we want to look into the brain when this happens. So that's the next step, to do the same study when people are lying in an MRI scanner so we can actually look at what is happening in their brain online at that moment. Right. So if you can figure that out, then that, that that's the next step then to figuring out how to perhaps improve those neural pathways, how to strengthen them maybe? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that that would be that would be a logical next step, uh, which I'm I'm really excited about. And we could also think about starting to manipulate these things using things like transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is a technique in which you can increase brain activity. So you could imagine that we could make imagination feel more real by by kind of um, manipulating people's brain activity online. That's another direction that I'm quite excited about. Wow. To explore. That's a wild, wild world out there. Uh, thank you so much right. for your time on that this morning. <laughs> You're very welcome. Fascinating research. Dr. Nadine Jeekstra is a senior research fellow at Welcome Center for Human Neuroimaging. Essentially, what they have found is that the brain sends signals so that you can determine what is real and what is not. What is a hallucination? What is a dream? Or what is actual reality? But if those signals are weaker, it helps to explain people's hallucinations, particularly in with mental health issues. Uh, for instance, if someone has schizophrenia, if they have dementia, those those signals get weaker. So by improving and boosting those signals, can you also then treat those issues? It's a fascinating subject, and it is amazing to me that they 
didn't realize that or didn't really do this research actually until now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Mornings with Simi. There's been a lot of information lately, a lot of medical research into telling us that alcohol is bad for us. It's really bad for us. And yet people still consume way more than they should. But in Ireland, they're doing something very different. And joining us now to talk more about this is Scott Chance, our contributor uh, for Mornings with Simi. Hi, Scott. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. What do you think of this idea of putting warning labels on alcohol? You know, this might sound like no fun, Scott, but I actually think it's a good idea. Okay, so you, first of all, we know you have a new nickname, No Fun no Scott. Fun Scott. <laughs> sure. What, do you think this would actually work? You know, I I, I kind of think it will. I kind of do think it will. I I don't mind saying like I drink. I you know drink. I think a moderate amount. Um, you think a moderate amount? Yeah. I you know I've I'm sure that there are people in my peer group who drink a lot more than me, and there are people in my peer group who drink a lot less. I kind of think I'm kind of in the average. But you know, a few drinks a week, um, more on the weekends, more in the summer. Uh, but it's not really a thing that I feel like my friends ever really consider is the health implications. It's just something that we do. It's just part of our culture. It's part of our life. It's one of these um, accents to life. It's uh, It complements the situation and helps people loosen up and have a good time. And we talk all the time about healthy eating and healthy lifestyle choices, and we never consider alcohol in that. It's just one of those like accepted things. It's like, well, yeah, it's just a necessary evil that it's bad for you, but we love it, so we keep doing it. So are you? do you think, so this is what Ireland is doing. They're going to put these warning labels. The labels will warn about the risk of consuming alcohol when pregnant, uh, consuming alcohol and the risk of liver disease and fatal cancers, as well as calorie counts. Uh, and they're going to implement this within the next three years by May of 2026. And their argument is, well, we do this for other foods that we know sure. cause a problem, cause health problems. Why aren't we doing it for alcohol too? So my question to you is, and because I don't drink, so I don't know. Right. So you go to the liquor store, you want a nice bottle of wine with dinner, and you pick up the bottle, and the bottle says, this product could cause cancer. Does that make you put that down? I I think if you're already in the liquor store with the intent to buy, I don't know. But I think maybe it will affect the decision next time. I think over the long term that... That, yeah, it will. And again, maybe I'm just, uh, maybe I've had my head in the sand and I'm open to the possibility of that, but I just think it's something that we don't really consider, or at least in my peer group and my family, like with my wife, we have a drink usually after work and stuff. We don't ever talk about how bad it is for us. Our concern is mostly how we're going to feel the next day if we drink too much or, you know, who's going to drive. We worry about those type of things, but hey, this is added calories. This uh, is known to cause like serious health risks risks down the line, like the cancer and stuff that you talk about. So being reminded of that in the, in the moment, 
I I can see that it would have an effect. Plus, imagine having a, a nice fancy dinner and a bunch of people come over and stuff and you put a bottle of wine on the table and there's this huge health warning. Right? Doesn't that kind of take away from it? Uh, first of all, that's a great mental picture. You're right. That's what it's going to be like. But I did have a little chuckle there when you were talking about the cancer and stuff. Because just to give you some of the, uh, the actual numbers on that, in Canada, there was a global study that was published in the Journal of Lancet Oncology. And in, that was in 2020. And it said that alcohol use 2020 was linked to 7,000 new cancer cases in Canada alone, including 24% of breast cancer cases, 20% of colon cancers, 15% of rectal cancers, and 13% of oral and liver cancers. Yeah. That's not good. (laughs) It's it's not good. And here's the thing. If you go to your doctor and you say, um, by the way, uh, and the doctor says to you, how many drinks do you have per week? I'm pretty sure 98% of people lie. Oh, def- definitely. I've had that conversation with my friends that we say to the doctor, this is how many, and then gauge the doctor's reaction. The doctor for sure adds 50 to 100% to that total. <laughs> as they probably should. <laughs> as they probably should. But yeah, I just think that it's not... We, we focused so much of the education in my growing up on responsible use of alcohol and not on that. That's how I feel. And not on the, the health implications. And I think I've, at least again, in my peer group, we've kind of got that figured out. You don't drink and drive. You plan a safe ride home. These are all the things that you have to consider. But we ha- we've kind of used that as the main messaging instead of the health implications. And now I think that it's really important that we get this message out as well. See, I don't actually think warning labels would work. I don't think it would stop. We know. We know it's not good for us. You know that if you drink too much of this product, it will make you sick the next day with a hangover. And guess what? People still do it. In fact, they line up to do it at the store. So I am not convinced that warning labels would work. But Scott, this is the beauty of the show. This is where we ask people what they think. They can let us know. Do you think warning labels on alcohol would actually cut down on alcohol consumption? This is Mornings with Simi. All eyes are on Ottawa this morning when former Governor General David Johnson and now special rapporteur will release his report on whether or not Canada needs a public inquiry into foreign interference. And for many Canadians, including me, there is only one answer here. I am definitely in the camp of, yes, we do need one. But this report has also gotten broad powers, right, to investigate and review classified documents in order for David Johnson to make his recommendation. So let's talk about what we are hearing on this, what we are anticipating. Michelle Junoketsuya joins us now, former chief of Asia Pacific at CSIS and author of Nest of Spies. Michelle, thank you for being back with us. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Do you have any anticipation? Like, what are you hearing about what might happen this morning? Just like you, I think we all expect to have a a yay for uh, the public inquiry. The challenge that I'm going to see now with the public inquiry is that somebody will try to push it in time as much as possible. Like, Anybody that doesn't understand or doesn't know today that in Canada we have serious problems with foreign espionage is coming from Mars. Because, like, come on, everybody was talking about it and we have plenty of evidence for a long period of time. So we need that public inquiry. But now somebody, the government, might want to push it on time as much as possible. Because following this, well, it'll take a moment before the the prime minister make a decision to name a commissioner, the commissioner that will be uh, uh, leading the inquiry. The, the commissioner needs to collect his or her team together. 
And then we're coming to the summer holiday, and the summer holiday will push that to the fall. In the fall, well, we need the audience and take a certain period of time. So we might not get the end result of that public inquiry before early 2024. And that is a long period of time when we are currently experiencing that form of foreign espionage. Uh, so, so we need that faster, and, and I'm concerned that somebody is dragging their feet. Okay, so you clearly have concerns. Is that is that the feeling, would you say, right now in, in the kind of area that you work in? Is that we're going to get it, but it's not going to be what people want? Exactly. Uh, and, and because, as you pointed out in the introduction, there is also an entire covert or, 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 or confidential element as well, which we will not get, the general public will not get access. Uh, and it's, again, a waste of time to a certain extent to, pro- to, to convince us that there is foreign espionage and foreign interference taking place. We need action right now. And right now, start with a law. We need a law, just like Australia has done in 2018. Do something maybe even better than what Australia has done because we can benefit of their experience and have something that we can give to the police departments currently, mainly the RCMP, to investigate, to be capable to prosecute and eventually punish the people that are doing it. Because contrary to uh, the general belief, it's not only diplomats who are doing uh, foreign espionage. Actually, diplomats are recruiting Canadians, and those Canadians are close to treason, uh, uh, treating this like, like, like espionage activities and reporting to a foreign entity. So they need, we need to have a deterrent law that will also punish people. And I'm not talking fine, I'm talking jail time. Okay, but that's is that going farther than what we have seen in Australia? Because a lot of people point to Australia, Michelle, and say that's what we should be doing. But I think Canadians would like to see us do even more. But is there an appetite for that among politicians? Oh, there is definitely with the with the uh, opposition, and and frankly, <clears throat> that would be the only way to secure and to protect our democratic system. Uh, the uh, Australia is now in the sunset clause five years later, and they are reviewing and review uh, what is currently happening and what they ha- how much success they had with their law, and they realize that they were not they didn't go far enough. Uh, they're capable to identify certain individuals, but they're not capable necessarily to deter them from uh, doing the foreign interference as, as we see. The American goes a little bit further. And, and again, recently, a guy from Boston was arrested, a Chinese uh, person that was arrested for exactly the same kind of work doing with exactly the same pattern with the United Front Work Department, which is a Chinese intelligence service working abundantly in the Western world. So we need this kind of approach to be capable to sort of give a chance to the RCMP or the police department to investigate properly. Because CSIS, they're not a power, uh, 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 they're not law enforcement agency. They're the only public servant. They don't have any power. They will never prosecute anybody. And obviously, they're not capable to warn the prime minister correctly, because since Mr. Maroney, they all avoided and, and, and uh, used it to their advantage. Well, that's exactly a good point. I was thinking there since Brian Mulroney. So uh, that's a long time we're talking about here, right? 35 years where this issue has been either an issue or becoming an issue, and we haven't paid attention to it. Is this, though, do you think the time? Do you feel as though it's going to be dealt with now? 
It is absolutely the time. Uh, historically, we've never seen so much information and so much debate about the issue. Still, unfortunately, the possibility, and do not underestimate how much the political machine is capable to kill the momentum uh, by dragging its feet, by not taking the, 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 the action that they need to be taken and stuff like that. Look at what happened just a moment ago. Uh, the, all the opposition were calling for uh, a public inquiry. The government took time to have a special rapporteur, and that's a special rapporteur now took a lot of precious time away from us. Mm. That is exactly what I'm afraid that is going to take place with the public inquiry. The public inquiry is going to drag its feet. And it reminds me another historical moment, which was the McDonald Commission at the early 80s. McDonald Commission then investigated the illegal activities of the RCMP during the 70s to try to tackle the separatist movement. Uh, and, and what the RCMP has done had been called by Prime Minister Trudeau père, the, the, the father, and and it led to the creation of CSIS, which today is this sort of powerless organization when it comes to try to prosecute people. So we need to sort of be careful not to repeat the same mistakes or to let somebody use, again, an organization that will camouflage this, uh, the, the, what needs to be done. Because to this day, today, the McDonald Commission still has portion of its report that is classified and unaccessible. All right. Good history lesson there. Thank you so much for your time, Michelle. Always a pleasure. Thank you for the time. That is Michelle Gino Katsuya, who's the former chief of Asia Pacific at CSIS and the author of Nest of Spies, giving us a preview of what he thinks he's going to hear, what we're all going to hear this morning when David Johnson's report is released on whether or not we should have a public inquiry into foreign interference. And we'll compare that, his preview of that, with what actually happens. And of course, there's complete coverage coming up today on 980 CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. We'd like to really initiate uh, new people here on the show. So that's what we did with Scott Shantz this week. We made him dive headfirst into bike lane drama, didn't we, Scott? Oh, yeah. Just great. <laughs> Just super fun. <laughs> so the, were, you, were you unaware how passionate people get about this? Uh, no. I mean, I have experienced uh, bike people. And I, I'll say I ride a bike a lot of the time. I love cycling. Um, but I'm aware that there is uh, ongoing dispute between cyclists and car people in and around our city. Okay, that's a very diplomatic way of putting it. So this has been a huge issue, of course, the Stanley Park bike lane, because first they put in that separated, they put the barriers in mm -hmm. during the pandemic, reduced car traffic, that turned into a big deal. The new park board came in, and then last week they removed some of the concrete barriers. Right. Bike lane is still there, but some of the concrete separation barriers have been removed. And then it seemed like on the weekend, did you see the picture, Scott? Everybody wanted to go for a drive in Stanley Park. Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, I don't know if you saw this, Twitter absolutely exploded with yes, the I opinions of, of everyone and anyone who's ever been through Stanley Park. You know, my favorite is like, oh, I thought I thought removing the bike lanes was going to fix this problem. And now, of course, you take the bike lanes out. Now you have even more traffic. But it's a sunny, long weekend. I mean, kind of what do you expect, you know? Exactly. That's what people were going to do. But what what did you hear from people about like what is the radical solution? I would love it if we 
really thought big and dramatic about Stanley Park because what we're doing is not working. Well, yeah. And I mean, it seems like, yeah, you're kind of darned if you do, darned if you don't, you know, bikes and and car people and stuff. So I uh, got in touch with uh, Park Board Commissioner Tom Digby and had a few questions for him about, you know, what's going on there and what kind of the possible solutions are. And maybe, yeah, even trying to, you know, think outside the box a little bit. And uh, here is what he had to say. What we're trying to do is optimize the park for all these users. And use is use changes with time. Um, you know, back in the 50s, people wanted two lanes for cars uh, so they could race around, you know, and it was considered a big uh, achievement of BC. Um, and then that, that changed. Um, in the 90s, um, car use in the park plummeted, went way down, um, and it became much more uh, controlled, and people started using it the park as a park um and uh this was so we're trying to optimize all these different users and there's a huge uh, increase in bicycle users and active transport users now so in terms of solutions um a, a great example would be to have a hop on hop off bus now we had that in place 15 years ago um and it was super popular um the park board paid for the whole thing it was a free hop on hop off bus this is around the 2008 2009 period um you could ditch your car outside the park and then just walk in as far as you want and then um toodle your way around now some people needed their cars to carry you know get the baby carriage or um get the big picnic for 25 people to some uh part some uh, obscure corner uh but other people can just hop on and hop off so that would be a fabulous um thing to reinstate um, we think we can find the budget for that. Um, it is a couple hundred thousand dollars for a season. You know, you do it from you know now, uh, May 24th weekend through to October. Um, but that's one solution that uh, is potentially feasible now. I've heard the suggestion that perhaps like let's make it no cars and then maybe we just, you know, provide special passes for special permits for special occasions that you need to get a car in there and, you know, open it up and, and do something totally different with the park. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you could uh, could you do a, a no car park? So I, I, you should know that one of the biggest parks in Canada, Gatineau Park, is just outside of Ottawa. You may know it. They actually close that park to cars for four days a week. Uh, and so the cyclists only and anyone on mo- um, active transport can get in the park there. So there is a case where they did go, uh, you know, they alternate uh, the, the days they pick. Uh, some days for cars, some days for cyclists only. So every park is trying to optimize, right? And when you look at, uh, you know, Central Park in New York City, so only park that's equivalent to um, Stanley Park in all of uh, in all of the Americas, um, in my estimation. So that's another great urban park. These are the two great urban parks, and they have 10 kilometers of bike lanes around the outer perimeter of of Central Park. There's no cars there. And they manage to, you know, it's very accessible for people and bikes from all over that city. You know, you look at another park, Golden Gate Park down in San Francisco. There's also four and a half kilometers of dedicated bike lanes in that park, right, in San Francisco. So, you know, all the major urban parks are turning towards this um, shared cycling with cars uh, lanes and uh, it just seems to me to be well past the time where we should be reversing ourselves on this bike lane. It's Tom Digby, uh, Green Party member of the Vancouver Park Board. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Scott. There were some great ideas in that discussion, Scott. Like one, I love the hop on hop off bus. Absolutely. Fantastic. Do it like yesterday. Um, also, I would go even further and say, can we not do like an electric tram? Put it right sure. in there, build it right in. Yeah. 
But the idea of sharing it, making it perhaps car-free three days a week. Sure. Friday, Saturday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Sunday. And then if you really want to take a drive through Stanley Park, you've got people in town, you want to show them, great. You're just going to have to plan it for during the week. Yeah. Or, you know, like if you had, maybe you're having a wedding in there or there's a special event or you need a special permit, of course, that would be something that that's, you could apply yes. for. Yeah, absolutely. But obviously there are lots of models in different places around the world where they kind of have figured this out and maybe we should be looking to them. I loved all those ideas. I'm glad to hear, though, that they are thinking of it. So I feel like this argument can calm down a little bit, <laughs> that there are some discussion points. Do you like the hop-on, hop-off bus oh, idea? To me, that seems exactly like you said, do it yesterday. Why? It seems like it checks all the boxes. It's relatively cheap because one of the things it's that's free. being tabled yeah. is like taking out a bunch of trees and putting in a third lane. No. Exactly, right? It's going to cost millions of dollars to take out all these trees. It's huge, huge, huge issue that, like, why? Why are we even bothering with that? Oh, we got to preserve it as it is and make it accessible. And I think there's some great ideas there. Thank you for that. Yeah. I learned so much. Scott Chad's talking about Stanley Park. What do we do? How do we reimagine it? Your thoughts are welcome. Simi at cknw.com. You can call or text our buzz line 331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. There is no way that you haven't seen one of the commercials or read a story about this new class of diabetes drugs, one of which is called Ozempic. You've seen that, right? I mean, it's amazing for treating diabetes and pre-diabetes. And yes, there's also that little side effect of weight loss. But as more and more people are taking it, it turns out that there are other potential side effects that it's having too. So apparently patients taking a drug like Ozempic have also reported experiencing the suppression of addictive and compulsive behaviors, things like nail biting and smoking. So it's now raising this bigger question, could this class of drugs help with addiction issues? Well, Dr. Ali Zentner is the Director of Obesity Medicine at Revolution Medical Clinic and joins us now to talk more about this research. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. This sounds really interesting. So what kind of behaviors have you seen change with this medication? So I think the first thing, even before we talk about like the he said, she said, you know, what did they say kind of phenomenon, it's important to understand just the idea of what is this class of drugs. And there's, as you know, a lot of misinformation out there and, and the drugs itself. So, for example, Ozempic is one of the commercial names for a drug called semaglutide, which is a copy of a gut hormone called GLP-1. And I should say semaglutide has been approved in Canada uh, for both the treatment of obesity and the treatment of diabetes. And where we're seeing this benefit is this kind of unleashing of this information around what we call the gut-brain access. So the idea that we now understand better than ever why we have sort of our food behaviors, if you will, our certain personalities around food, why cravings aren't a will concept, they're actually more biological. And, you know, what GLP-1 does is it's a true gut hormone released by the small intestine in response to food to tell your brain that a meal's arrived. And you go back to sort of biology of that. Well, if the brain is getting a food signal, it's not going to think it's starving. And so your brain doesn't need to hunt food, so to speak. The hunter parts of our brain also do other things. So they also are involved in cravings and compulsions and rewards. And so what you're doing is you're literally sort of attending to that compulsion slash craving slash 
addiction slash compulsion reward center in the brain. And you often see a translation that other, let's say, um, uh, manifestations of an overactive hunter system um, will actually be muted. So that's where we we can see, you right. know, some patients reporting. And I will say, I do have patients report, quite honestly, not all of them, but variability around cravings around food and certain foods and even certain cravings around alcohol, etc. So I, I think it's important to A, take the the sort of they said world of social media mm-hmm. and et cetera with a grain of salt, but also to understand why that might be triggering that response. First of all, stellar job in making that so that we could all understand what you were talking about there. Sure. <laughs> because that can be very challenging. Neurobiology right. is so easy to get. I mean, really, it's <laughs> just an easy concept. It's for everybody. Exactly. Yeah. The, so you just did the ABCs of neurobiology for you us. Like that? And we appreciate that. My be- pleasure. Because you're right. We see the commercials. We see the right. headlines. And people don't dig enough, you know, dig a little deeper into it to understand right. what's going on here. But have you seen those changes in people? Do people have like these, we would call them like bad habits or whatever, biting their nails, and then that stops? So I want to, me, you're, you're awesome, but I want to correct us around this idea of habits, right? Because habit implies that it's a person's will and that if they can start it, they can stop it. And I think we underscore the idea that a lot of this is more biological and right. more how our brains are built. And that's where bias, for example, around substance misuse disorder, alcohol misuse disorder, bias against obesity comes from, is from our idea that, ah, just snap out of it as a will thing. And that's not the case. Isn't that what we're learning with these drugs, though, too? Like, we are learning that... We're learning that our brains are different in in all of us. That depression is not just, you know, depression used to be called uh, low moral fiber. 50 years ago, like if you want to get horrified, right? So that, you know, brain chemistry is really complicated. But to answer your question, yes, we are seeing, I mean, it depends on your patient population, right? So if you put enough people on a certain um, agent, you're going to see variability of response in terms of, you know, who has side effects and who doesn't, who has response and who doesn't. And remember, we're all a little bit different on the inside, just like we are on the outside. So our our biology is different as well. And so we are, and in fact, the data actually shows this. This is why I chuckle, because back in like 2020, there were reports in the literature of decreased cravings towards alcohol with the use of, of this class of agents, not just with semaglutide, but for example, with exanatide and dilaglutide, which were other agents of this nature. And there's been ongoing animal studies in particular to show exactly that, that what you do is you target what's called the mesolimbic system or the compulsion reward system in our brains that evolved to make us good hunters. And you sort of hit it where it's working. Um, And then there's some very small uh, patient sort of retrospective studies going on, um, as well as right now, they're actually looking at prospective randomized trials, looking at everything from alcohol misuse disorder right. to um, to nicotine use, etc. Okay, but has this opened up then, Dr. Zetner, a whole new air, sure. like area of going, okay, well, we, we didn't know this, and now we have to look into this. I think it's opened up a few things. So I think the beauty of medicine, I mean, medicine has its pluses and its negatives absolutely i will acknowledge but the beauty of the of medicine is that 
when you under when you study one disease, you may learn about another because we learn about the intricacies and the complexities of the brain um, and the brain gut. Access. So, for example, studying diabetes and developing diabetes medications led to a better understanding of obesity and this idea that obesity was not a will issue, but an inappropriate starvation response. And then that led to an understanding of sort of that compulsion center that's hardwired into our brains and how we, you know, the, the organ that controls our mood, controls our food, controls our compulsions, controls other factors, and led to an understanding of substance misuse disorder. And so is there, is, you know, I, I think, first of all, I think the run on, oh, oh, like, all of the hype and the negative right. hype in the media around, quote, Ozempic, and, you know, I hear terrible things like, we should save it for people who really need it. Like, you know, that's a decision that a patient makes with a physician, and and I think it speaks to the weight bias that exists in the media and in general society. But I'm fascinated that now, because there is an option for substance misuse disorder and a light has just turned on in a space where we can all acknowledge there has been very little medical treatment up until now, and it's been a very complicated you know, uh, issue that now all of a sudden, you know, drugs like semaglutide have become positive again. Like, you know, for example, when it was for treating diabetes, it was amazing. When it was for treating obesity, it was, oh, my God, please. And now it's for treating substance misuse disorder and it's back on people's good list. You know what? You're so right the way you just described right? it there. So, you're, you're right. But it seems to me we are on the precipice, like we're on the verge of perhaps discovering a whole new way to treat these issues. A hundred percent. And I think that the biggest barrier to all of this is bias. And so what this says to me is, uh, it's funny, because when I, I was asked to sort of talk about this, I thought, oh, yeah, this is because of, you know, and, and just another biology lesson. Think about it. 50,000 years ago, you don't want to die of starvation. You better hunt food and you better store fat. And so in our brains, we actually have a hunter system called the mesolimbic system, which is the craving center of the brain. It's also been linked to ADD, substance misuse disorder, um, compulsion disorders like picking, etc. And it, it's, you know, anyone who's ever the Nordstrom sale, for example, that's your compulsion reward center on fire. And it's a dopamine pathway with different receptors along the way, cocaine receptors, cannabinoid receptors, nicotine receptors. It also has fullness hormone receptors like GLP-1 along it. And so that's what you're talking about in this system here. But I I think the idea Mm -hmm. here, what this has shone a light to me is that, yeah, this biology we've known about now for the last 10 to 12 years. And I love that we're pushing the narrative forward. Viagra started out as a blood pressure medication. It then became an erectile dysfunction medication, and now it's used for both pulmonary hypertension and erectile dysfunction, two very different diseases, quite frankly. So, you know, I I think this idea that, that understanding this moves the conversation forward to answer your point. But the biggest barrier still remains, I think what it reveals to me is how much bias exists in the world, period. Such an interesting discussion. Dr. Zentner, thank you for your time. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. No website, no app, 
no call center, no way to check reservations. I mean, pretty much BC Ferries was your basic nightmare at the end of the long weekend. That was the situation for most of yesterday. Just when you really needed those services the most, it was when they were all gone. And here's one thing else that we don't have an explanation. What exactly happened? How are they going to make sure this doesn't happen again? So it was very challenging to get any information out of BC Ferries yesterday. We put in so many requests uh, to talk to the you know present CEO, Nicholas Jimenez, uh, the Minister of Transportation, Rob Fleming. I'm pretty much assuming that today is the day they're going to try to figure out what the heck went wrong, and then we'll hear from them. But at this point, 24 hours, really too late for all of the passengers and the people who were stranded and stuck long lineups and just a whole lot of waiting and frustration just to get back to where they started from, right? How is this acceptable? What needs to happen? I know they said it was an IT outage. Fine, that happens. But come on, more of an explanation. Where is the plan B in dealing with situations like this? Well, joining us now is Jordan Sturdy, the official opposition critic for BC Ferries, also the MLA for West Vancouver Sea to Sky. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, sir. Have you been hearing about this from people? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You remember I represent Bowen Island. So I spoke to the mayor on the weekend. Uh, clearly an absolutely unacceptable situation. No doubt about it. What were some of the stories that you were hearing about on Bowen Island? I, mean, I understand that was just a complete nightmare. People were stranded there. Uh, absolutely. They they got over there and then didn't find out um, at all and that they weren't going to be going home until... Uh, that day until they showed up at the ferry terminal and it was, oh, by the way, there's no more ferries for the rest of the day. And that was also, that was a separate issue, wasn't it? Because there was the cancellation of ferries and then there was on top of that, the IT problem. On top of that, yes. Uh, but, you know, on Bowen Island, it, it, is, it seems to get the short end of the stick regularly. Um, I, and I'm not entirely sure what the situation is other than I, I suspect what happens is that deck officers are not available or short book offs and so rather than canceling uh, a langdale sailing or a, a nanaimo sailing they transfer the deck officers or the engineer onto the uh, from from a bowen ferry to uh, the bigger ferries and so bowen this is not at all the first time this has happened um we, we've seen this increasingly over the course of a uh, number of months or even longer so what what do you think needs to happen here? Like, I mean, you're an MLA. Have you been able to get any information about what happened? No, uh, nobody's really available. Um, they're, they're not particularly forthcoming. As you mentioned, there's no sign of uh, of joy or or the or the new CEO or or the minister for that matter. So it's it's pretty disappointing, and it's a it's certainly a disappointing kickoff to. Uh, to the summer travel season, isn't it? It really is. And people do not want to think that this is going to continue to happen. What do you think needs to change here? Well, you know, I have to say right off the bat that we have seen increasing politicization of this organization over the last six years. And I don't think um, it's improving the situation. I I believe that uh, you know, Mark Collins was a, a sacrificial lamb, which was, who had it was an unjustified termination. It seemed to me, Ms. McPhail didn't even bother to meet with the man before he, she fired him. <laughs> so it, it clearly was uh, was a, a political 
Um, this corporation has become more and more of a political football as time has gone on here. But, you know, there's there's lots that can be done. And um, starting with the depoliticization, making, making sure they're independent, but let's, like, right off the bat, look at improving services or improving communication, making sure that people are available, anticipating some of these problems, backups on technology, um, and, and effective customer support. I have to say, in, in terms of the customer support, I do. I saw the comments from the, the, the um, Ferry Workers Union representative, and and uh, have to agree. It's it's unfortunate that they're the ones that are taking the the brunt of it. They're the ones that have to deal with the the customers that are concerned, that can't get home, that that have their plans disrupted, that that may have. Um, you know, uh, well, there's no medical care on Bowen Island, for example. It's, well, yeah, exactly. Scary. There's no there's no access to the health system. Exactly. But can anything really truly be independent when you are still completely reliant on the government, you know, for setting your rates, for getting money, for getting the subsidies? Like, you can't really have something like BC Ferries be independent. Well, it, it, it is dependent on... Uh, for, to the government for about 20 to 25 percent of the revenue the, the rest of it is raised through fares and uh and other revenue streams but government can get what it wants out of the corporation it just has to um has to cooperate and participate and contribute and uh i, I think it's, it's certainly an eminently doable you think that that is doable then to say, didn't we try that? Didn't we try that under the Gordon Campbell years? It didn't always work either. No, but I think over the over a period of time it did. I think we saw the age of the fleet go down. Uh, we saw terminals being rebuilt. Uh, and, and the age of the fleet piece is a really important piece because that is that is a function or creates a, a, a um, impacts reliability of the uh, of the vessels, and that's part of what we dealt with with mechanical issues are a constant challenge. So reducing the age of the fleet and uh, and improving their performance, there's there's much that uh, that can be done. And what we've seen here is that uh, over the last number of years, we've seen 15 of these projects canceled. Uh, and one comes to mind in particular is the uh, is Langdale. Langdale. Part of the challenge with Langdale is that uh, people and cars access an egress of ferry on the same deck and it just causes delays and and, and uh, difficulties in terms of loading and causes um, uh, delays and, and ultimately ends up affecting what happens in Horseshoe Bay. It's all a, a, an integrated system. So they you know, certainly the lack of investment over the last number of years has, uh, I think, beginning to, uh, to demonstrate what kind of problems we're, we're going to be facing in the future. And the forecast from the ferry uh, to the ferry commissioner from the um, uh, from the corporation shows a fairly bleak uh, outcome over the next couple of years in terms of, of higher costs and reduced revenue and maintenance and, and labor issues. See, none of that sounds good. Uh, listen, thank you so much for your time this morning. No problem there, Sammy. Anytime.
Yeah, I appreciate that. That's Jordan Sturdy, official opposition critic for BC Ferries, uh, BC United MLA for West Vancouver Sea to Sky, Bowen Island included in that, as he pointed out. Uh, and really, they there was a big hit on Bowen Island yesterday without any cancellations of sailings on top of that without any of the technology to book a place know what was going on even check the website it was a nightmare people were stranded it was so terrible to have happen on a long weekend so let's hear your stories on this because this is going to have to be an ongoing issue to get the attention of bc ferries of the government we've put in a request to talk to them still have not heard you know when are they going to tell us what happened and how they allowed this to happen. And I think the Ferry Marine Workers Union person was absolutely right. If, if the work frontline workers are having to take the brunt of customers' anger and concerns over that, management should be on those front lines too, right? This is Mornings with Simi. If you follow Canadian crime stories and the news, and you've probably heard about a Mr. Big Sting operation. These have been used by Canadian law enforcement for a long time now, years now, and in some very high profile cases. But I have always wondered, how do these work? Because they seem incredibly detailed, very extensive well, guess what? This is something that Nancy Hicks has also been looking into. Nancy's a senior crime reporter for Global News and host of the Crime Beat podcast and joins us now to talk more about this. Good morning, Nancy. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for talking about this because I'm super curious. So so how common is using these Mr. Big Sting operations? Oh, it's very, very common. And uh, this episode came about Um, during, as I was putting together the series, The Second Shift, about a historical homicide, I was speaking to one of the undercover officers who was involved. And that's when I learned that he was on the original team who came up with the Mr. Big Sting operation for homicide cases. So, like, historically, they were doing a lot of undercover operations, what they would call, like, a jailhouse plant. So, you know, he spent a lot of weekends in jail where he would plant himself and and try to elicit a confession. But those rules changed uh, early on. And so in the early 90s, this team that was in the lower mainland of BC, uh, working with the RCMP, they started brainstorming, like, what could we do? And so the officer in this episode called Going Undercover, he shares with us you know, how they first developed the Mr. Big Sting operation. And he was a part of the a groundbreaking technique uh, used in the country. And it's fascinating. It's exclusive access to someone who spent, you know, decades working undercover. And uh, it's, it's just amazing. And, and you have to think about the impact on your personal life because you're fully living this role Um, So say, you know, as an example, you go to pick your kids up from school and maybe you look like, uh, you know, you have long, long hair. You're trying to fit a certain role. You know what I mean? Uh, You're trying to look a little sketchier than you normally would. You get a lot of looks. He talks all about that. So it's fascinating. That is fascinating. Now, these these pivoted, right? Because they used to be uh, one thing, but then there was a decision. What was that back in 1990 with the Supreme Court of Canada? So that was kind of where um, things changed in the jailhouse. So um, there was a Supreme Court decision in 1990 that undercover officers could no longer actively elicit information from an accused without violating their right to silence. So 
like they could only passively observe. So that's what led police to try to figure out new tactics to garner confessions. Of course, once they came up with the Mr. Big Sting operations, um, there have been rules outlined as well. So like in 2014, a Supreme Court of Canada uh, decision outlined key issues with the Mr. Big Sting operation. Um, And like it basically pointed out that confessions are often accompanied by evidence that shows an accused willingly participated in simulated crime. Like, so for instance, um, you know, I, I just did one where the offender that they were targeting, you know, they were trying to get him into, you know, crime. So like he was, he was like, Oh, I'll deal drugs. I'll do this. I'll do that. Like I'll sell weapons. So like they're, they're generally things that would, the court ruled sully the accused character, right? So it can bring with it a risk of prejudice. So the court noted that wrongful convictions can often be traced back to evidence that is prejudicial. So there was new rules outlined. So um, in a recent episode that we discussed on the last time I was speaking with you, Beyond a Reasonable Doubt, you know, some of those rules came into play with that case. Right. And because it's such a fine line, isn't it, Nancy? Right. Where are you entrapping somebody? Are you enticing somebody? Are they willingly jumping in? It it must be so difficult for police who are working these cases. Yeah. Like these officers, they have to know the law inside and out. And, you know, they're trying to get the best evidence possible. They don't want to put all this work in and then have it thrown out of court. So, you know, he really goes into that. And, you know, I also include some uh, interviews with a defense lawyer and a prosecutor to give an example of one. Because I think I think a lot of people think that these Mr. Big Sting operations, because I've shared a number of them that are successful, they think, oh, this is a slam dunk. But that is not the case. You know, there are very, very specific rules. And, uh, you know, if it doesn't follow that to a T, it can be thrown out of court. Um so it's so interesting um, to, yeah. to hear this from this officer. And just to have this exclusive access to this uh, officer is just, I mean, the life this guy has lived. And he has spent, you know, you think about it, a huge part of his life around some very unsavory characters, I guess we could call them. Right. Um, including in the series, uh, The Second Shift, which was a true, you know, murder mystery and you know he talked about that man that he had to befriend the killer in that case and you know he said that it was just he was one of the worst people that he had ever had to be around like just this guy was vile you know crazy Wow. Okay. And so that's, this seems to me unprecedented too, because we haven't very heard very often the details behind this and kind of what goes into these operations, have we? You know, that's one of the things that I try to do on Crime Beat is to give you that behind the scenes information. So whenever possible, I try to involve, you know, the undercover officers like I did in this case, or, you know, we'll share with you the audio or video of the confessions that are garnered to just give that context. And, you know, whether it's prosecutors or defense lawyers or the investigators or the undercover officers, my goal is to give you that behind the scenes knowledge so that you know what goes into investigating the cases and, you know, either a successful prosecution or, you know, in the case of beyond a reasonable doubt, um, there was a lot of issues that came up in that case. Right. And that's a very, it's a very Canadian technique too, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I, because my expertise lies in uh, Canada, I don't know exactly how it works in the U.S., but, um, 
Yeah, it's it's very widely used here. Um, and, you know, I think I think a lot of defense lawyers, if they can get to a client before very long, if there's some suspicion, they'll say, like, you know, if somebody tries to befriend you, you know, don't yeah. because that's that's usually the technique. You have somebody show up and befriend you and, you know, pull you into their circle. Yeah. So it, it is a common technique. And investigators are very protective over this, obviously, because, you know, it is a key means of uh, being able to push cases forward in a lot of cases. Right. And we've certainly heard about it here in BC for sure. Now, that's one episode that you've got going on. Uh, but you also have another one about the murder of Terry Ann Dauphiné. Yeah, that's the Beyond a Reasonable Doubt. Um, and that one came out, uh, you know, just a little while ago, right before the second shift. So definitely check that one out because it does talk about the Mr. Big technique. Um, you know, in a number, it's interesting because I have shared a number of cases with these Mr. Big uh, undercover sting operations this season. And, you know, there's no one cookie cutter model for them. So definitely give these ones a listen. Um, and I can give you a sneak peek into the next episode. If you're listening on Amazon Music, all of my episodes come out a week early and ad-free on Amazon. So technically, there's a new one out today. Um, but for anyone listening on another app, it'll be out next week. But it's a really interesting case that um, is really a true whodunit. Um, it happened in 2006. And there was a man out scouring for bottles in downtown Calgary when he came across a shocking discovery. And that was the starting point of... A, a true murder mystery for Calgary police. Um, so I share how they followed the trail of evidence, which is just really unreal to see <laughs> how far um, they had to go to uncover the evidence in this case. And what they did was uncover a web of deceit uh, created by a criminal to cover his track. So definitely wow. check that one out. Um, I don't want to give too much information for people who aren't listening <laughs> early on Amazon. I don't like to give a spoiler, but um, definitely listen to that one. It's a story of deadly betrayal and really an unsettling truth that's left a, a family devastated. Well, I'm sold. I'll check it out. Nancy, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Anytime. That's Nancy Hicks, senior crime reporter for Global News and host of the Crime Beat podcast. A couple of the latest episodes dealing with some fascinating topics here. And I am, am really fascinated by the whole Mr. Big Sting operation thing because it is actually a very Canadian police procedure. Once you start looking into it, I was so curious after listening to the podcast, you know, did a little more research and looking into it. And yeah, there are some countries that don't allow it, actually. But in Canada, it is, it is widely, widely used. Used, uh, as a police technique right across the country. It is a fascinating one. So again, check out the Crime Beat podcast.